I came prepared just in case. <laughs> so um, I am glad to be able to be here and uh, to be able to preach, but uh, even just to be able to come and, and just be a, an honor and a blessing to my parents. Well, we hope that we're being an honor and a blessing to them. And, uh, and so this, this year, is you know, they're going to be celebrating their 50th anniversary. And so all of the kids, we got together and just put our minds together and thought, well, we can do some just different projects and things. And so we're taking shifts of uh, different projects uh, to accomplish. And so ours is about done. <laughs> but uh, it's been a blessing to be here with my family. If you will, take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I want to preach to us on uh, the title of the message tonight is a look at the Garden of Gethsemane. A look at the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse number 39. We're going to read through verse 46. 39 through 46. Let's go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, if you're able to. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. The Word of God says, And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Let's go ahead and pray and then you can be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for just the opportunity to be in your house on a Wednesday night, a midweek service. We thank you for uh, just old-fashioned Baptist churches that still have prayer meeting. And uh, not just in word only, but we actually pray. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, just uh, a, a place that we can meet that has uh, the facilities that we enjoy. We just thank you and praise you for that. We don't want to take it for granted. Lord, we pray that you be with those that are here, that uh, the message would be a help to them. We pray for those that are not here for whatever reason. We pray that you would bring them back on Sunday. We pray that you would send visitors, that you would send, uh, that you'd just fill your house. And Lord, we pray that you'd send revival uh, even to Central Calvary Baptist Church as well as Trinity Baptist Church in Bainbridge, Georgia. We thank you uh, for your goodness to us, your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you are, are new. I don't uh, know everybody in the room, but I know most of you. And, uh, but just for those that don't know who I am, well, you do know how, who I am, but a little bit about myself. I am uh, the assistant pastor at Trinity Baptist Church in Bainbridge, Georgia. I've been there for going on four years. Uh, prior to that, I pastored uh, Crossview Baptist Church for seven years in Moultrie, Georgia. And, uh, and then prior to that, I've been an assistant pastor since the year 2000. 
up until the point that I started pastoring uh, in Moultrie. Uh, the Lord has just led us uh, through all of that. I'm hard-headed, and uh, for the Lord to direct us to a place, it has to be very, 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 very clear for me. And, uh, and so I, I just... I don't know if I, I must get that from my dad. Do you think that would be the case, Brother Sousley? Yeah. <laughs> my mom is waving her hand. No. <laughs> but uh, that's just a little bit of, of background uh, about me. Um, my wife and two daughters are back uh, in, in Bainbridge, Georgia, and uh, they're doing well. Can't wait to get uh, back home to see them. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be going back on Friday morning. So y'all pray for us for traveling. Luke chapter 22, the Garden of Gethsemane. This, uh, this message is, uh, is, we're familiar with the story. We know uh, that this is what happened uh, prior to Jesus being crucified. This is the events leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, and uh, of course, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, really every day for those who are believers, we celebrate that or should celebrate it. And, uh, and so because of that, we often kind of skim over some of these things. Uh, my wife, uh, she got saved in a Southern Baptist church and that church split and she ended up as a teenager going to a Methodist church. And, uh, and then at, thir- uh, at 13 years old, she, her mom remarried and... and uh, married an independent Baptist uh, man, and so that's how she became independent Baptist and has been ever since. But she said that there are some things that Methodist churches do uh, around, the, around Easter that Baptist churches don't do or do as, as much as, uh, say, a Methodist church. And one of those things is observing the different events that took place uh, before the, re- the, the resurrection. Uh, they really focus, uh, as far as my wife's account, she said they really focus on the crucifixion and the days prior to that. And uh, I think that that's, uh, it's important for us to do that. And, uh, and so I was a little bit offended, honestly, about that. Because as a believer, everything about Christ should be important to us. We shouldn't just skim over uh, some of these things. And uh, the, one of the reasons why we skim over perhaps this, this portion uh, of, of Scripture or this, this, uh, these events right here is because the, the most important thing is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And so we just skip right on to that. But tonight, if we will just step back a little bit, let's look at some of these things. And I'll give you a little bit of uh, uh, details, some information about this place that Jesus frequented. It says in our first verse that we read in verse 39, and, we, and he came out and went as he was wont. That statement means that this was a place that he frequented. This is a, a place that they went to often. And uh, no doubt, if you, well, if you read the other uh, uh, gospel accounts, uh, in Matthew and Mark and even John, you'll, you'll see that uh, you'll see Jesus and his disciples going to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not a, a place that is foreign to them. They are familiar with this place. We are not so familiar with it. The word Gethsemane means olive press. 
It was located east of Jerusalem at the base of the Mount of Olives. And it was a place that, uh, where harvested olives were, uh, from the mount were pressed for oil. This was a place that Christ, of course, with his disciples frequented. Not just with his disciples, but I believe Christ went there uh, even alone at times. But he went there often. A place that they could get alone with God. Uh, that's, that's something that is, should, we should take as an encouragement, should take as a, even a challenge that we would follow Christ's footsteps, we would follow the disciples' uh, footsteps in that they found a place alone to get with God. And uh, this was important at this time because this was the Passover time. With Passover, it was estimated that there were two, two and a half million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. Two and a half million people in a very small place. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was crowded. So no doubt this was a, a great uh, pastime for them to get away from the crowds, go off to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and have a time of prayer and just to be alone in a sense. But this is not just uh, uh, Gethsemane, but it is referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. In John chapter 18, in verse number 1, it calls it a garden. Gardens are, have, uh, play a big part in and throughout the Bible. In fact, at the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read about a garden there, do we not? Yes, it was a garden of tragedy because that's where sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. So we see that it was a garden of tragedy there at the Garden of Eden. Then we see Christ who, in this passage of Scripture, is going to, uh, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and we're going to see that uh, this is a place that Christ is being tested. So it's a garden of testing. And then later on, you can read in John chapter 19 and verse 41, it says this, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. That garden, not like the first garden that was a garden of tragedy, not like the second garden that was a garden of testing, but the last garden that we read about is a garden of triumph. Hallelujah. Jesus was triumphant over death, hell, and a grave because Jesus is God. Gardens have, are significant throughout the Bible. If you do a little bit of a comparison between the Garden of Eden and the, the, gar, the garden of, uh, of triumph that we uh, referenced where Jesus was crucified, the garden of Eden, Adam communicated with Satan. Adam and Eve communicated with Satan. But in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus communicated with the Father. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed and sinned. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus obeyed and suffered. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve was conquered by sin. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And in the garden that he was crucified in, Jesus conquered sin. That's a great comparison. Just kind of give us a little bit of a, a picture of what this place was. That it is important for us to look at these places and to reflect upon them and, and be able to just not skim over them, but to look at it and see what can we apply to our lives. That's why we have the whole counsel of God. That's why we have the canon of Scripture. And this is the canon of Scripture. We don't have, we don't have to have the Apocrypha in here. We don't, have, we don't need the, the Gnostic Gospels. This is the Word of God. And this is what we're to live by. Uh, not like, well, I was going to name a name. One famous preacher said we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Shame. Shame on that. The Old Testament is God's Word. Equally as the New Testament is God's Word. And we're to read it and we're to, to study it and we're to apply it. So how can we apply this story where Jesus takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays and, and the disciples sleep, and then Jesus goes to, uh, to the council and is tried and, and, and then is crucified and he was buried and he rose again. And, and that's about it. Well, how can we make application? Well, let's first of all look at the path of Gethsemane. Number one, we're looking at the path to Gethsemane. In John chapter 18, I'm going to turn there. Just you, know, you can keep your place here in Luke chapter 22. But in John chapter 18, we see a little bit more information about the path to Gethsemane. John 18, 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. The same garden in John 18 is the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22, it doesn't call it a garden, but here it does call it a garden. And so we see that they passed over the brook Kidron. The brook Kidron flowed through the valley of Jehoshaphat and is also called the Black Brook. It's believed that even the psalmist David, who wrote Psalm 23, was referencing this brook. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That valley of Jehoshaphat and the brook Kidron that flowed through that valley was, is, is a place that is referenced as the Black Brook. And there's a reason why it's called the Black Brook. The brook dwelt in the shadows, darkened by shadows, by, uh, by, from, the, of course, the mountains on either side. Not only is it, is it called the Black Brook because it's darkened by shadows, but it's also darkened by sewage. See, two and a half million people are in Jerusalem. The sewage from Jerusalem, which was a, is, was a developed city, they had sewage systems. They had uh, aqueducts that, that, that got rid of sewage as well as brought in fresh water to the city. From Jerusalem and its aqueducts, the, flowed, the sewage flowed into a particular place. I'll give you a guess of where it went. It went to the Brook Kidron, which is 
we kind of can picture that a little bit. But when you multiply that and add so many more people, it becomes a very putrid place. It becomes a very stinky place. Jesus and his disciples have just left there, Jerusalem. They're heading to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're crossing the brook Kidron. And they're breathing in all the stench. Boy, what a picture of what is actually fixing to take place in the world at that time. Jesus is going to the cross to pay for the sin of the whole world, the stinky, disgusting sewage of our society. Jesus is going to pay for that sin. And just a little bit of a a smell that goes with that. The Bible says that our sin is a stench in God's nostrils. Jesus is crossing the brook Kidron that's darkened by shadows and now it's being darkened by all the sewage that's flowing through it but it's also darkened by shed blood. From the altar in Jerusalem is a drain. And in that drain from the sacrifices, two and a half million people, it's estimated for two and a half million people in Jerusalem, they would have to have a quarter of a million sacrifices to atone for one year that amount of people. 250,000 lambs slaughtered. And that blood being shed and flowing into the brook Kidron. Do you see the picture? Jesus is, and his disciples are going to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're fixing to cross the brook Kidron and all the sewage is flowing through the brook. But then the blood that's being shed, that's going to atone for one year, for, all, for, for those that brought the sacrifice, it would just roll their sin forward, not paying for it, but postponing. And it comes through, and it kind of pushes down that sewage, but it doesn't, it doesn't remove the sewage, does it? But Jesus is going to a cross where when he dies, he's going to remove sin. He's going to pay completely for sin. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 it says, And without shedding of blood is no remission. In fact, if you want to turn there, hold your place, there's several verses here that speaks about Jesus being that sacrifice for us. In Hebrews 9 and verse 26 it says, And then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In Hebrews 10 verses 9 and 10, it says this, or well, actually, 9, 10 through, through 12, it says, 
Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering at oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. The sacrifices, the two uh, the two and a half million people that are bringing sacrifices, over a quarter million sacrifices, can never take away sin. But verse 12, But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. Amen. Yes, Jesus, his sacrifice, what he is doing, it's not something that's going to mingle with the sewage or maybe push it down the, line, down the, 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 the brook a little ways. No, the blood of Jesus removes sin. It takes it away. It puts it away. I'm glad that we can sing and say, my sins are gone. They're out of here. You know what? We choose to live under the bondage of our sin. Jesus already paid for it. But Jesus is that final sacrifice. And so the path to, to Gethsemane is a great uh, thing for us to consider. The second thing for us to consider is the prayer of Gethsemane. The prayer of Gethsemane. Look with me back in Luke chapter 22. I didn't hold my place. Did you hold your place there? Good. <laughs> I got to turning. Luke chapter 22, we'll, we're, uh, the, verse number, one more page, verse number 40, look what it says. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them, about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The prayer of Gethsemane is an example for us to follow. Now, we refer to what most people call in, in our world as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. We can read about that. The Lord's Prayer is, is uh, what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. I, I don't refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. I refer to it as the model prayer. It's an example for us to follow, a, a pattern, if you will. And this is, this is a pattern. This is an example for us to follow as well. The prayer of Gethsemane. First of all, let's look under the prayer of Gethsemane at his request. What is it that Jesus is asking for? In this passage, well, verse 42, it's pretty straightforward. He says this, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. We'll stop right there. Remove this cup from me. Now, that's a, that's a big topic in, uh, when you get out of concord, uh, not a concord, but a, a, a commentary, and you have a lot of different opinions, a lot of different things that people believe about this, this cup. We do know, and I think that, that we can agree tonight, that the cup that Jesus is referring to is a cup of suffering. 
because Jesus is going to suffer. We can agree with that. Jesus is going from this place, he's going to go suffer. He, he's going to pay a price. But why is he having to go pay a price? Why is he having to make such a sacrifice or have such suffering? Even as we've read earlier, so much suffering that even his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. Why would he do that? Why does he have to go through that? Well, I believe that this cup is not just, uh, is, there's more to it than just saying that it's the cup of suffering. And it's, it's great if we could stop there because that leads us to the cross and, and Jesus being buried and ra- raising from the dead and salvation, and that's, that's wonderful. And that's, we need to proclaim that and declare that. But there's a little bit more to it than that. In John chapter 13 and verse, uh, ch- chapter 13 and cha- uh, chapter 14, Jesus kind of gives us a little bit more information about um, this cup. We're not going to take the time to go read through all of that, but, but he gives us a, a little bit more of an insight. In fact, in John chapter uh, 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So Jesus makes that statement, and that was not a foreign uh, conversation that people, that was not something that was new to the disciples. That conversation, that, that what Jesus was saying, was typical of, of a Galilean that would be proposing to his future bride. And that's what Jesus is doing. And in that, he would offer the father of the groom would offer a payment that would be paid to the bride's family. It would be paid to the bride. And that, that dowry payment would have to be agreed upon between the father and the groom. And this picture, Jesus in the garden, is asking his father, if, if it's not your will for me to take this cup to pay this kind of a price, Father, you're the one that has to say no. If it's too much, say no. But if you're good with the price, I will pay the price. And he offers that cup to say, this is what I will pay if you will have me. And he offers that cup of betrothal to the bride anyone that would receive Christ as their savior he offers that cup that cup is a cup of suffering it is a sacrifice a payment that is that has to be paid and so Jesus's request was remove this cup from me but then his relinquishment When you and I make a request to God, it's okay. Listen, it is okay. It is fine for you to ask God for something that you want or to bring what your desire is before God. But understand that when we bring a request to God 
and it's what you want, we should always offer a relinquishment to say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. When we pray, as Jesus gives this example, we make a request. His request was to, Father, remove this cup from me. But his relinquishment was, but not my will, thy will be done. So what do you have on your heart today? What is something that you are burdened about? That maybe you may, you may think tonight, well, I'm not going to ask God for that because that's, that's, I don't know if that's what God wants or if that's what I just want. My brother-in-law, y'all, Mike, he's looking for a job. And he has several different job opportunities in different interviews, and he's talked to so many different places, and the, the choices become multiple choice. How many of you, when you were in school, liked multiple choice? Boy, I did. <laughs> I like, multi, I like true and false questions better. There's a 50, 50, 50 chance there. But multiple choice was fine when we were in school. But in, rea- in reality, in real life, when you have multiple choices, what do I do? What do I do? God, this is what I want, but I don't know if that's what you want. I want what you want, so help me. That's often how our prayers can end up being. God loves you. He wants the best for you. And the very best for you is what he wants, not necessarily what you want. So when we pray, give your request, even if it's your desire. Relinquish that request and that desire to God for his will to be done instead of your will be done. And then we notice the repetition. Now, Luke chapter 22 kind of gives us a little bit about that, but if you go to to Matthew, we're not going to turn there, but Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46, you see Jesus going back three times. He asks, not my will be done, thy will be done. Remove this cup, not my will be done, thy will be done. Remove this cup, not my will be done, thy will be done. In, in Luke chapter 22, it says this, in verse 43, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. That praying more earnestly meant he repeated his prayer. Now, he wasn't offering a prayer repetition like um, so many idolatry, churches of idolatry do. And that we're told not to pray with prayers of repetition. But he prayed without ceasing. He asked, and he asked, and he asked, and we, we can read that. Now, we often, one of the things in my life with prayer, because I don't pray as I ought to pray. I don't pray as much as I ought to pray. One of the hang-ups that I have, and I don't think that probably I'm alone in this, is that if I'm, I'm supposed to ask God for things, and I'm supposed to have faith and believing that God's going to answer those prayers, and I'm relinquishing my will to his will, then why would I have to ask over and over and over? 
And the best answer that I have for you is because Jesus did it. Jesus prayed, and then he prayed again for the same thing, and he prayed again for the same thing. What do we learn from that? What application can we... Is our faith more than Christ's faith? No. But what we learn from that is that we should ask, and we should ask again, and we should continue asking until you have the answer. Now, what is the answer? Well, sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. And sometimes it's just wait a little while. But you keep praying. I'm glad that there are parents of those of you sitting in this room today that didn't stop praying for you. And I'm glad that Jesus didn't give up on us either. He kept praying, and he prayed, and he prayed again. That's the prayer of Gethsemane. And then lastly, I'm not going to, let me check my time. I'm almost done. 7.05. What time do we get out of here? Eight? Eight? I'm going to hurry. I know that there's, there's people back there that, want, that are having a fun time. And I don't want to hold them up either. So first, we looked at the path to Gethsemane. Secondly, we looked at the prayer of Gethsemane. And now we're going to look at the preaching of Gethsemane. But there was no preaching. Yes, there was. Look with me at, this, at our text. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We stopped reading at verse 44. Um, just... No, we stopped at 43 with the prayer. Let's pick up at uh, verse 44. It says, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up and, uh, from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them, what's it say? Sleeping for sorrow. Now, the, this is, I don't know if your brain works this way or not, but the next verse says, and, and said unto them, Jesus said unto them, why sleep ye? Now, it just said that they were sleeping for sorrow. Jesus knows, I mean, he's God. He knows all things. So the sleeping for sorrow is not really why they were sleeping. The sleeping for sorrow, if I could put it in, in a term that helps me understand it, maybe it helps you on. They were sleeping because they were sorry. Hmm? They were sleeping because they were sorry. Yeah. When we are sleeping, when we're supposed to be praying, that's pretty sorry. Yeah. Well, oh, me is what we should be saying, right? They were sleeping for sorrow. And he said, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And that is the message. That's the preaching of the Gethsemane. He's, the message of Gethsemane is, number one, wake up! Wake up! The, the Bible says this, in Romans 13 and verse 11, it says, 
and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Is that verse more true now than it ever has been? It's always true, and it always has been true, but it just seemed so relevant for us today. As the church, we need to wake up. That's the message. Wake up. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. We have to wake up. Number two, he says, rise up. Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. That goes along with the, in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, awake to righteousness and sin not. When you got saved, when I got saved, he lifted us up. But we get bogged down. As a just man, he falls down. When he saved us, he saved us and he changed the destination where we're going. But we still have this flesh this sinful nature that fights and wars against the Spirit of God in our new nature. It's a battle. And sometimes we fail. We fall down. But because we're righteous, because we're just, because we're children of God, because we're in a battle, because we're soldiers, we're going to rise up. And that's the message for us. We're not throwing up our hands, waving a white flag tonight. We're in a battle. And it's time for us to wake up. And it's time for us to rise up. Rise above that habit. Rise above that sin. Get up as a righteous man and a just man. Though he falls seven times, he rises up again. But the wicked, it says, shall fall into mischief. That means they stay down. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're to wake up. Number two, we're to rise up. Number three, we're to pray up. Matthew 26, verse 41, is, as I referenced earlier, it says that he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. In Luke chapter 20, it says, and being in agony, he prayed what? More earnestly. I like that word. The Bible says, James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So as a Christian, the message for us today, as it was in that day, is for us to wake up, to rise up, and to pray up, and then to preach up. In 1 Corinthians 15, the last part of that verse says this. I'll read the whole verse. Awake to righteousness, sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Shame on us when a lost world doesn't have the gospel. They don't have the gospel, not because Jesus didn't do what he was supposed to do. They don't, it's not that they don't have the gospel because the early church didn't do what they were supposed to do. No, they did. They turned the world upside down. But we have not. We have not. 
There are people who have not the knowledge of God. And that's our fault. It's our fault. We are to preach the gospel to every creature. We're to go into all the world and preach. So preach up. And lastly, is to look up. That's the message. Look up. Romans 13 verse 11 says this, And that, knowing the time that now, uh, sorry, and that, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Jesus is coming again. And we need to be looking for his return. And as we're looking for his return, it's not, we're not sitting back in our easy chair looking for his return. No, no. We're staying, as we used to say in children's church, I'm alive, awake, alert, and enthusiastic about Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. As we occupy, did he say occupy till I what? Till I come. Is he coming again? Let's look for him coming. Look for his coming. Know that the time is short and we have a job to do. Let's wake up, rise up, pray up, preach up, look up. Why? lest ye enter into temptation. Just tonight, a little small look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm going to pray and I'm going to turn the service over to Pastor South.